a privilege to be here and to share the ministry with our visiting brethren. I ask you to turn, if you will, first of all, to the Gospel of Mark and chapter number 14. Mark's Gospel and chapter number 14, and just beginning at the verse number 1. After two days was the feast of the Passover of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and scribes sought how they might take him by craft, put him to death. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat. Now, you know the details. The Lord Jesus Christ commends her. She had done what she could. Verse number 10, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priest to betray him unto them. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Now, the remainder of our readings will be in the Gospel of Luke. So turn to chapter 19, if you will. Luke's Gospel in chapter 19. These are all very familiar portions, so we'll just break in. Verse number 29, Luke 19, 29, it came to pass when he was come nigh to Bethphage and Bethany. At the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him, bring him hither. And if any ask you, why do you loose him? Thus shall ye say unto him, Because the Lord hath need of him. And they, they that were sent went their way and found even as he said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus and so on. Chapter number 21, verse number 1. And he looked up and saw rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow casting in thither two mites. He said, Of a truth I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. For all these have of their abundance cast into the offerings of God. But she, of her penury, of her deep, deep poverty, hath cast in all the living that she had. Turn now to chapter number 22. And we'll look at verse number 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us a Passover that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when you are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. You shall say unto the goodman of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room, furnished. There make ready. And they went, and found as he had sent unto them, and they made ready the Passover. Finally, chapter 23. Thank you for bearing with these several readings from the Word of God. Verse number 39 of chapter 23. 
One of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. The other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? We indeed justly. We receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done not one thing out of place, nothing amiss, everything in season. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Now we do trust God will add his blessing to the several readings of his word. Very familiar and often dealt with in different ways from the word of God. There are, as we all know, sufferings of Calvary that we can know nothing of. Sufferings of such a depth, such an extent, that they are beyond our ability to describe, to appreciate, to enter into. No one else ever knew the unbroken fellowship of God, the enjoyment of that fellowship as he did. None other could know then the tremendous sorrow of what it meant for the enjoyment of that fellowship to be broken those hours upon Calvary. But we have read of a week in the life of the Lord Jesus, a week that was marked by sorrow, grief, that we can identify with. In that last week of his life, there was the, the malice of men against him. Leaders, those in responsibility in the nation, their malice, their envy, their hatred, their bitterness rising to a crescendo until finally it spilled over at Calvary as a huge flood tide against the Savior. But he knew also the, uh, the bartering. He was bartered for a thief and a murderer. Imagine your life being lived and all you had done for the nation, acts of kindness, deeds of mercy, meeting needs, three plus years of ministry, and at the end, the entire life of service is viewed of such little value that men bartered him for a murderer. He would know the betrayal of a Judas. He would know the desertion by ten. He would know the failure of a Peter. Griefs and sorrows in the last life, in the last week of the time of the Lord Jesus Christ here upon earth. But the Lord Jesus Christ moved as a dependent man. We are all familiar that in the gospel of Matthew, the Lord Jesus is a man of destiny. He is destined to rule and reign, God's king. Of course, in the gospel of Mark, he is seen as the diligent servant. And in the gospel of John, he is the one who is deity. He is the distinct man set apart from all others. But here, of course, in Luke's gospel, especially where we have read most of our readings, he is a dependent man. And in the pathway of dependence, God has given encouragements in the pathway of faith. So while we have cataloged some of the things that would be, humanly speaking, now I, I need to be careful, the Lord Jesus was not disappointed. Humanly speaking, though, 
There were all of these events in his life in the very last week which would have taken a natural man and made him feel, using the words of one of the servant songs of Isaiah, I have labored in vain, all my strength is for naught, yet my judgment is with God, and so on. And so we have looked then at five encouragements that God raised up in the last week of the life of the Lord Jesus. We have read of uh, owners who gave him a colt. We have read of a woman who gave him her coins. We have read of a man who gave him a chamber. We have read together of a woman who gave him a costly box of ointment. We have read of a man, a thief, who gave him a confession. A colt, some coins, a chamber, a costly box, just a confession. Yet they were encouragements God provided for his son. God feeding faith for those who are dependent upon him and choose to live to please him despite all that is around. So let me just, if I can, just highlight a few things. Any one of these would be enough for our brethren to handle for an entire ministry meeting. But just to highlight a few things from each of these portions of the Word of God and leave them with you, and hopefully for our encouragement as well as for our instruction. I want you to think of those that gave him a cult. It is only Luke who tells us that there were owners, not just one. So it would suggest to us the poverty of these individuals, men of limited circumstances, men of limited ability. They had to share the colt between themselves. So the owner said unto him, why lose she the colt? So here were men who had limits, limitations, and yet their limitations did not hinder them from giving what they had. What, what a tremendous encouragement to the Lord it must have been. That amidst the scene where all were denying him, there were those who said, we will bow to the fact that he is Lord. The Lord hath need of him. What a tremendous thing that God gave his son that encouragement. Here were those who not only marked by poverty, but marked by perception. He is Lord. He may soon be going up to a cross. He may soon be set at naught by the nation. They may seek to take his dignity. They may seek to take his honor. They may take his clothes. They may take, try to take his life. He is our Lord. And we will yield and give and supply whatever we can as we recognize him as our Lord. Now, while we are looking at these things from the standpoint of the encouragement God provided for his son in that last week, I don't think it's any less true that he takes great delight when in the scene of rejection today, where God is marginalized, where Christianity is vilified, where the name of Christ is blasphemed, I don't think it's any less true that he finds great delight when here and there believers recognize he is Lord and I will bow and yield my life to him and I will seek to honor him with my life. They owned a fact. They fulfilled the scripture. They furthered his glory all by just giving what they had. They gave a colt. Let me tell you about a woman who gave a coin. I want to think of some, a danger that she avoided. 
Now, we don't have time to read all of it, but you just let your eyes go a few verses earlier in, at the end of Luke chapter 20. And the Lord Jesus Christ there is speaking of the Pharisees who for pretense make long prayers. And they devour widows' houses. So she was living in an atmosphere where men were abusing, misusing widows. She could well have been bitter. She could well have been could have said, with, with everything going on around me, with, with all of this hypocrisy, with, with all of this unreality, why should I bother? Why should I ever go up to the t- Why should I ever give something when they're taking everything? I mean, here, here's an atmosphere. Here's a, a, an entire mentality of just taking from others. She avoided the barrenness of bitterness. Never become bitter. Never become bitter over others, failure, hypocrisy, shortcomings. Barren, bitterness leads to barrenness of soul. Here was a woman who avoided a tremendous danger. I think of, when I think of that, I think as well of uh, Elkanah in the Old Testament, Hannah's husband. Now you may... Uh, there maybe are a few things that could be said that could be improved in uh, Elkanah's character and his life, but uh, I do have to give this to him. That despite the failure in leadership, despite the awful conditions at the tabernacle, despite the departure of the nation, year by year by year, he honored God as he went up with his sacrifices. He never became bitter, cynical, negative. His eye was fixed upon God. He avoided a a tremendous danger. But as I see this woman, I remind it as well of the depths of her poverty. You will notice if you have a reasonably good margin or you've looked at this for yourself, that the Lord Jesus changes the, the, the words here a bit in chapter 21. It speaks at the beginning of her a certain poor widow, but then the Lord Jesus Christ speaks of out of her deep penury, out of her, out of the depths of her poverty, she has given all the living she had. Here was a woman again marked by tremendous limitations. So little she could give, so little she had, and yet she would freely give it in devotion of heart to the Lord Jesus. I, um, I, I may be perhaps guilty of a bit of imagination. You recall, don't you, that when Judas returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and he threw it down into the temple, they said it's not lawful for us to take what was the price of blood and put it back into the treasury. So she was putting into the treasury what they took out of the treasury to pay Judas to betray Christ. What's the significance? I am responsible. I am responsible to be devoted to God, to give what I have. What others do with it is their responsibility. She gave out of absolute devotion to the God she loved. What wicked men did with it was their responsibility before God. She gave. We see her devotion. We see the delight 
she brought the Lord Jesus Christ as he viewed that scene. And of course, it was the Lord Jesus who determined the value of what she gave. She hath given more than they all. The summation of all the rich gave was less than what she gave. Always remember that he is the one who determines the value of everything in our lives. The value of your service, the value of your devotion, the value of your sacrifice. He is the only one that can really set a right estimate upon that value. Let me tell you about a man who gave a chamber. Flavored water, that's different. I forgot, I'm close to New York City, so things get a little bit more classy up here. Okay, we're from down, way down there in the depths of South Jersey. I want to talk to you about a choice this man made. A choice he made. The Lord Jesus Christ said, uh, go into a city, find a man bearing a pitcher of water, follow him and say to the good of the house, where is the guest chamber where I can keep the Passover with my disciples? Now, you all know that that word is the same as back in the Gospel of Luke, and earlier in Luke in chapter number two, the inn. And of course, it is the idea The word literally means, I think Mr. Vine says the word means a letting down. It was the place where visitors came and they just kind of unburdened themselves, unburdened their animals, and uh, it's just a very common room. That's not the room the man gave Christ. Instead of the guest chamber, that the common room, the uh, something less than uh, your best, He gave him the best, an upper room. The guest chamber would have been on the ground level where visitors, travelers would come. This man gave him the very best he had. What a tremendous delight it must have been to the heart of Christ. When men were taking, when there was the greed of a Judas for 30 pieces of silver, the grasping of leaders for power and place, that someone gave the best they had. He asked for the normal. He asked for the, uh, the routine. And yet he had absolute confidence, this man will give me the very best he has. Are you and I willing to give him the best? Best of our years. Best of our time. Best of our devotion. Best of our service? Or does he get leftovers? Does he get what's available after we've met all of our own needs and satisfied all of our own desires? This man made a choice. But I want you to think, and again, forgive imagination, think of the consequences of of the choice. Think of the lessons. Think of the lessons from that room. I've often thought, you know, we, uh, those of you who are visiting us from other countries uh, can't appreciate that we Americans are trying to make our history. You, 
from the UK, you have a long, long history. We're trying to make our history. So we, uh, everything that is historic, we set up monuments and plaques. And uh, if it's 100 years old to us, it's ancient. And so we revere it and so on. But I've, uh, I thought that uh, here would be this Goodman of the house. I wonder if some days he would walk up to the upper room. He would think that's where he knelt to wash the feet of disciples. That's where he sat as he broke the bread. That's where he was when he lifted his heart to God in prayer. And he would think of all the memories linked with that upper room. Think of the consequences. Lessons about humility that come from that upper room. Can you find any other place in your Bible? I know there are exhortations to humility. I know there are other examples of individuals who are humble. And certainly we have the doctrinal lesson in Philippians chapter 2. But could you turn to any other place in your Bible that would display the depths of humility of the Lord Jesus as hands into which God had committed all things? They held the dusty feet of disciples and washed them. He knelt to wash the feet of a Judas as well. Can you think of anything else? Any other place where the lesson is so indelibly inscribed as in that upper room? Think of the light that comes from that upper room. Think of the revelation of the Father's house, of of the fellowship that we can enjoy as believers with, with divine persons. Lessons relative to light relative to fruit bearing. Now, don't, uh, don't hold me to uh, whether 15, 16, and 17 were in the room or outside the room, but uh, just allow it for now, for the sake of a, of a message, to all be inside the room, if you will. But uh, just think of all that occurred in that upper room. Think of the tremendous light that we have. Thinking of the longings he expressed, that they may be with me. You go to John 17 and you, you get close to the heart of Christ. And you find out what he thinks of you. It's all in that upper room that that man gave so freely. And of course, the Lord's Supper that was instituted there that we commemorate each Lord's Day. Think of the consequences of that room. The great contrast, men gave him a cross. Here was a man that gave him a chamber. Men would give him the very lowest place. They would make him the most despised, despicable treatment they could possibly imagine. Here's a man that honored him by giving him the very best he had. Could I just, this is kind of, an, kind of coming to the end of my message before I'm there, but let me just mention this. What you do in devotion to Christ will have far greater consequences than you can ever measure. I think of it sometimes as, uh, as children. I'm sure all the boys here have done the same thing. Your dad would take you to a pond or to a lake and you would, you know, throw a stone in. And you'd watch as the ripples. I sometimes think that acts of devotion for Christ are like little pebbles. Cast into the vast purposes of God and the ripples will only be found on the shore of eternity. To know all that happens, all that God has accomplished by just small acts of devotion. Let me hurry because time is going. I want to 
talk about this woman and her costly box. In her act of devotion, she radically reversed the estimation of disciples. I, I am not sure how the Lord Jesus Christ responded emotionally to the fact that after three years of patient education of disciples, of displaying his glory, of showing his care, of manifesting his deity, that here, when a woman comes with an alabaster box of ointment, when Mary comes with her box, they think far better to have given it to the poor than to pour it upon him. Their estimation was so faulty. Now, I know reading John's account and reading the other accounts, it would appear that the murmuring began with Judas and uh, like a deadly virus, his, his discontent and his greed began to affect all the others and they all took up the, the complaint. But they took it up. It displayed something of the lack of appreciation they had for, for the Lord Jesus even now. She appreciated his worth. He was more worthy than the neediest, the poor. He was more worthy than the nearest. Her brother had just died and she didn't pour it on him. He was more worthy than the most natural. Use it for self. The neediest? The nearest? The most natural? No. He deserves, he deserves it all. Far more worthy than anyone else I can pour it out upon him. Judas thought he was worth only 30 pieces of silver. She thought she was worth a whole year's wages. And she gave it freely. But not only did she radically reverse the opinion of men, the opinion of the disciples. Did you notice that uh, I took time to read there in, in Mark? The counsel of the ungodly. The determination of the leadership was not on the feast day. That is our one stipulation. It cannot be on the feast day. Now, whether it was because they feared the crowds in the city and uh, the danger of, of riot and the danger of the Romans coming and somehow just putting a squelch on the entire affair, whatever it was, they didn't want it on the feast day. God had said, on the feast day. So the council of the ungodly said not on the feast day. God says yes, on the feast day. What will God use to reverse, to overthrow the council of the ungodly? We read it. Mary comes with her alabaster box of ointment. She pours it on Christ. Judas is so enraged at what he has lost he goes to the leaders. They covenant for 30 pieces of silver. And when he has a convenient season. So the one stipulation of the leadership is put aside. If you're willing to betray him, then we'll just take him whenever you can give him to us. So that God used a woman's devotion. Unknown to her. She had no concept at all of the of the counsels of men. No idea at all of the 
machinations of men behind the scenes and their wickedness. All she knew was there was one she wanted to honor. God brought her along at that critical time to encourage him and to overthrow the counsels of ungodly men. She must have refreshed the heart of Christ. Must have been a tremendous joy to him to think of a of a sister who was willing to give all she had and to recognize his worth and his value when others didn't. I would like to think, and again, we're dependent upon external sources, that that alabaster ointment was of such a nature, such a character, that it's the fragrance of it was still seen all the way to Calvary that what she did added a fragrance to Christ, that all the spittle of men, all the vile abuse that men heaped upon him, all that transpired in those hours of agony and suffering, all of that couldn't ablate, couldn't erase the fragrance of the ointment that a sister had poured upon him. What an encouragement to the Lord Jesus. But I want to come to Luke 23. And tell you for just a moment about the thief upon a cross. There may be some difference of this, and I'm open to discussion. But I would judge that what this thief says at Calvary is perhaps the greatest confession made to Christ in his entire earthly sojourn. But let me first of all tell you just how tender, how kind, how wise our God is. So could I tell you about a shepherd's heart and the joy? Now you just turned a few chapters earlier in your Bible, right? Luke chapter 15. And it tells about a shepherd who finds a sheep, puts it upon his shoulders, and he goes home rejoicing. What happens in Luke chapter 23? The shepherd finds a sheep, puts it on his shoulders, and says, we're going home. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. What joy to the heart of a shepherd to find a sheep and take it home rejoicing. Now, please do not ask me to explain to you how infinite sorrow could coexist side by side with infinite joy. But in this one blessed man, it was there in all of its fullness. God gave him a sheep a lost sheep. Men hurled in his face. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. You know how the Lord Jesus responded to that? He saved another. Amazing. They would mock him that he could save others and not himself and he would save another. A shepherd's heart and its joy. But I think of a, of a soul's confession and its timing. God is so precise in his timing. 
at the darkest moment, humanly speaking. Now, humanly speaking, at the darkest moment, when men have over his head, in mockery, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, when surrounding the cross there are men, scorning, blaspheming, mocking, deriding, denying, darkest moment, God sends a thief with a confession. But I want you to think especially then of how God encouraged him. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Of course, inscribed in scorn and in derision. This is your King? Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. What was this thief actually confessing to? What was he acknowledging at that dark hour? He was acknowledging the one next to him not only had done not one thing amiss, not one thing out of season, but that a day was coming when he would return, set up a kingdom upon earth, reign as king over all. So now you just fill in the blanks. If he is going to come again and reign as king, that means his death has value. That means his resurrection is assured. That means his return is definite. That means his reign is assured by God. He was confessing to God's entire program for his son in the darkest hour that could possibly be imagined. What an encouragement. How, how gracious God is giving encouragement at crucial times in the pathway of believers. So let me just then, if I can, emphasize three things. Number one is the virtue of becoming an encourager. Here was encouragement for the Lord Jesus in his pathway. You and I can become encouragements to each other. Maybe in small ways, but we hardly know the full result of the encouragement we may bring each other. Secondly is to recognize the value of encouragement. That it accomplishes far more. Far more than we can ever begin to encompass in our own reasoning and in our own measurements. But I think as well of the need for us to have vision to see encouragement. We can be faced with the malice of others around us. There are some here probably that come from homes where there is no one else who is a Christian. Some of you live in dormitories where there are no other Christians. Some of you are in offices where there are no other Christians. And you may well face the malice of men. You may know something about the inconsistency, as the Lord Jesus did of the ten, who, in a time when they should have been dependable, were not. And you may know as well the failure of good men, tragically. We can be occupied with the negative. We can be occupied with failures. Or we can seek to see encouragements God gives 
in the trials of life, in the testings of life, as we seek to trust him in life, God can give encouragement. You can just look around and see some of them. I think of our brother Hull and his wife as they have gone through tremendous trial. What a great encouragement to see the character that shines forth amidst difficulty and adversity. Think of, uh, of Broen and her family and how they have weathered a trial and displayed such wonderful Christian qualities and graces. God gives encouragement. We need vision to see it. Not to be occupied with what can bring us down, but to be occupied with all that God would provide to strengthen in the pathway of faith.